Hello, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is our 21st episode of A Girl Like Me Live, which is an interactive streaming series that we hold here on Facebook. It streams here on our Facebook and YouTube pages where we talk about different wellness topics related to women in HIV. I'm so happy to be joined today by Mrs. Connie L. Johnson, I've heard so much about you and I can't wait to just delve into this conversation. Um, so I want to first ask you if you could please just introduce yourself, your any affiliations, and how are you connected to the Well Project? First of all, hi, and I'm so glad to be here. Um, yeah, so I'm Connie Johnson. I have been living with HIV since 2002, so this will be 20 years that I have been living with HIV. I am from Orangeburg, South Carolina, and um, I started with The Well Project as a blogger in 2012. And since then, I have joined them on panel discussions at conferences, and um, it just been—it's been, been kind of like an extended community, extended family, and support um, as women living with HIV. And so, it's been very instrumental in me, you know, becoming just who I am. Uh, I am the founder of Growing Into Greatness, which is a nonprofit organization based here in South Carolina. And um, yeah, that's who I am. Oh, it's so great to meet you. And I think this conversation today is going to be impactful. I think I'm going to learn a lot. I think I don't know. It's just going to be great. So we're talking health disparities, health inequities in HIV. So yeah. What even, what is a health disparity? What are health inequities? How could you put that into terms? So I would define, define a health disparity as any um, issue, whether it be, yeah, any issue that hinders someone from being their, their full selves, from operating in the fullness of, of their health whether it be emotional, mental, physical, um, yeah, anything that hinders that. Um, on a social level, uh, on an economic level, yeah, that's how I kind of des describe that, yeah. Yeah, so anything that, like, hinders that. So I, we were talking a little bit before this, and I can remember, you know, going to school, and finally having the language, the words to be able to describe what it was I experienced on a daily, daily basis. You know, like the poverty and the, you know, things that to the outside you get judged a little bit, but when you're in your own community, you know, it's just the norm. Right. Things that you do, you know, just to get by. Um, and being able to finally put words and be able to understand why these how the system that we live in affects our health, how we live and everything. I was diagnosed with HIV in the rural South. I'm not sure where you were diagnosed. Um, is it the- Also in the South. Uh, I was in Columbia, South Carolina when I was diagnosed. How was your access to care when you got diagnosed? That's what I wanna ask. Access to care was, um, because Columbia is the capital of the of the state, it had like the best care possible in the state. So access to care wasn't so much of an issue for me um, when I was diagnosed. However, um, living in a more rural area now is very much so telling when it comes to um, limitations on access to care um, in a rural setting. Um, there are fewer clinics, and I also had the experience of being cared for in Chicago. So to have all of these experiences, like I can, <laughs> like the, the differences are just glaring when you go from one area to another. Um, and yeah, mostly here in, in, in the rural South, um, care is very much so limited, um, resources are limited, and um, yeah, something needs to give, <laughs> to be honest. 
absolutely like I don't know. I've lived down south too. I live in Philadelphia now. So living down south in the rural part of down south, because like you say, Columbia is like the capital. So resources are going to be there. But when you get further and further away from it, sometimes those resources dissipate. And I was living an hour and a half outside of Atlanta. And the closest clinic was like 45 minutes away by car. And there were like, if I didn't have a car, how would I have been able to get there to get the care that I needed so that I could stay well? And I know that that situation isn't unique or particular to me. So many people, one of our camp members brought that up actually for today's talk, the barrier of transportation. Um, not having access to that could limit your access to so many other things in life that could benefit you and increase your quality of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I um I recently got a car maybe two or three months ago after not having a car for like almost three years. And it was the hardest three years ever because you think about your basic needs and how you, you get to them, um, particularly here in the South, like just getting to the grocery store. You want to talk about healthy food. So a lot of time, because I don't have a ride to the grocery store, I'm eating out of gas stations, which is very unhealthy. You know what I'm saying? That doesn't support my well-being at all. Um, getting to and from the doctor's office. So we do have a transportation um, system set up at the at my clinic, but the transportation only runs on certain days at certain times. So I'm trying to maneuver my appointments around the the, the, the transportation. Um, like it was it was hectic. It was really hectic being without a car down here. And um and I, I believe my health um my health was impacted by not having access to transportation. And um and I know like you said it's not just real that that issue isn't just relegated to me. Like there are a lot of people who have the same issue. And I'm fortunate enough that I actually live within the city limits. Like I only live maybe about five or six miles from my clinic. There are people who live 30 and 40 miles, you know, in a more rural area who don't have that access. So yes, transportation is a major, major issue. And I'm hoping that at some point when, as we're talking about solutions and increasing the um the the wellness and care of people living with hiv that we start putting that kind of stuff into the budget (laughs) like like there needs to be transportation even if it's like just a van and paying for somebody to drive that van whenever the clinic is open like those are the kind of like practical solutions to i think a lot of people's issues like, as you just said that, I was like, that's a great solution. It sounds so easy. <laughs> it but- does, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so what's the barrier there? Like, why why don't those things connect? I could say for myself, before I, before I had this experience of not having a car, um, I believe that when, when you're not in the situation, it doesn't you have no idea of of what it's like so when you get in your car every day and it cranks up and you go where you need to go like for me i love going to the grocery store because i'm going on my own time nobody's in the parking lot waiting for me i'm not on anybody else's time so just something as simple as being able to go to the grocery store for myself by myself is major but if you like before having this experience that wasn't even an issue for me. That was that was nowhere on my radar that this was an issue for people. So I think that a lot of people who make the decisions about where funds go and how funds are spent and how much goes where, they're not um, they're not aware. I don't believe of the, the the basic needs and necessities of the people that they serve. And so yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) You took the words right out of my mouth. Like, I feel like a lot of the the people who are making the policies, procedures, letting the money go sometimes, you know, they don't know, they don't understand. And so that's where I, that has always been my aspiration. My goal is to be able to serve as kind of a, a bridge or a gap to that because 
is real life going on in these communities? Like HIV is not the only thing I got going on. So I can't spend all day here in this clinic. I just can't do it. Wait. Come <laughs> on. Like I made my appointment for 9 a.m. for a reason, yo. <laughs> I'm grateful. I had an appointment this morning. They got me in and out of there. I'm grateful for that. But at a certain time, it's like, yo, I feel like you're not appreciating my time. Like, I don't have nothing else going on. And then I was having an issue. We talked about this a little bit, too, the support groups. Um, for any type of services that I was looking for when I got back to Philly, you know, that's one of the things that they offer is support groups. But they was holding these joints at, like, 1 o'clock on a Wednesday. <laughs> I'm like, yo, I got a job. I need support, but I I have a job too right. that I need to go to, and they make me request yeah. time off to come do this. Like, this is this is not a benefit to me. It's not helping me at all. Um, and so sometimes you know this HIV journey could feel lonely without having that support or having people that understand. And <laughs> how do you feel about support groups? Have you ever oh. been? Yeah. Yeah. So support groups. Let's talk about it. All right. So I started out in the support group um, when I was first diagnosed, like the support group that I was in, like it really helped me a lot, like to see women who were living with HIV, who were thriving and, you know, being good moms to their kids and, you know, and, and you know, really living like was very much so helpful. But 20 years into this, and all that I have now is a support group. Mm, that's not what I need at this point in my journey. Um, and so I think the support group is, is, is very much so beneficial for the newly diagnosed woman um, who comes in and needs that support and, you know, needs those, those folks to wrap their arms around her and, and have that space to be able to, um, to be able to express herself and you know and 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 be around other women um but it can't be the the end all be all um and the only you know source of of community and support for for women um it is just not um i don't even know the word it's just not conducive to 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 a woman who is wanting to thrive um because a lot of times and i'll be honest the a lot of times support groups also are like very heavy and it can get dark because you're laying out you're so a lot of times we're laying out our toughest moments like our hardest you know aspects of our lives and it gets heavy and so i wonder i wonder honestly how beneficial that really is to the mental to you know to know that you're going in this space and it's you know very possible that it's gonna get sad um so yeah, I, I just think that there there has to be something else attached to the 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 support group, um, I guess, paradigm that we're in when it comes to you know doing things for women living with HIV. Um, can I give a example of something that I've seen and how it works? So um, while I was in, I went to Kenya in 2012. And there was an organization there and the women, they do have some, they had support groups. Um, but the support group was a small part of a larger program. These women were also learning skills. Um, they were learning candlestick making and cooking and, you know, mosquito net making. They were learning all kinds of different kind of trades and skills in addition to the support group. They were also being taught how to start a business in addition to the support group. They were also, you know, and their children were being taken care of in addition to the support group. So I believe the support group is a is a is a benefit to women living with HIV, HIV. But it, it to me it it being the end all be all, um, you know, form of support is is is. It's not cutting it, to be honest. It ain't cutting it. It's, it's right. not cutting <laughs> it. <laughs> no, if we talk about that toolbox, I do feel like that is one tool. You know, for some people, it may be a bigger tool than others. But to be real, you know, this. <laughs> 
uh, who those who are vulnerable and most impacted by HIV a lot of times. This HIV is not HIV support is not the thing that I need the most. I need money because <laughs> I need to come pay. Come on, come on, come on. <laughs> Childcare because I need somebody to watch my kids so I yeah. can show up and do these, you know, presentations and talks the way. It, you know the compute the community pulls on you too sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I need therapy, not mm-hmm. just support mm-hmm. that group. Yeah. I need therapy. Yeah. And that one, you know, we just had a talk. The last the girl like me live was on mental navigating mental health. Mm-hmm. And that can be so hard. Mm-hmm. Like forget just being able to get there, but being able to access it. Like the insurance that you carry a lot of times. You know, for those of us who have been on state insurance before, mm-hmm. when you on Medicaid, like the providers that they, you know, the group of providers that you have to pull from, a lot of times aren't, it's not a lot of them, and everybody's right. pulling on these same providers. Right. So it's not the best. It's not. It's not. And, I, you know, I, I believe that people are doing what's been done because they're not sure what else to do. Um, and so, you know, I think it's I think it's imperative that those of us who are living with HIV and those of us who are walking this walk are are vocal, <laughs> and we you know we say exactly what we need um, because, I, like again, I I think that people outside of this experience who who make the decisions and have the power to make these decisions are making it from an uninformed space or a very much so um, kind of um, academic space. You know, we know all the facts and the figures and we know, you know, we know the, the, the <laughs> I'm just gonna say it, the head knowledge of what's happening. But when it really comes down to the, the boots on the ground um, experience of what this thing is, our needs um, a lot of times go unmet, like you were talking about. Like, it's hard for me to, you know, remain in a healthy mental space when I don't know if my lights are going to get cut off or not today. I don't, you know, it's it's hard for me to maintain a, a healthy, you know, immune system when I don't have any food in the fridge. So these are like real life issues that are impacting people living with HIV that do not get addressed um, enough. Absolutely, absolutely. And I've been in the transition before of like having absolutely nothing and trying to trans transition off of welfare. That is, it makes me so sad. I wanna cry y'all, why is this one I wanna cry on? But you know, moving from TANF, which isn't very much money at all, but the way that they make you jump through hoops to get that little bit of money, you know, it's like that effort would be much better applied somewhere else. But okay, I'll do what y'all need to so I can get this money in this child care. Then, you know, now I'm out here looking for a job, but now I need a job that is going to make more than the food stamps that I'm getting because y'all about to cut them off. Mm-hmm. And hopefully this job comes with medical because I might make just too much, you know, to receive the medical. And as a person living with HIV, that determines a lot. Like that impacts yeah. a lot. Like where I'll go live I'm not moving I feel so safe right here Because I have my medical figured out I'm scared to go somewhere else Because I've been in places Where medication is not always available If you don't have insurance I asked the lady today Are you sure if I don't have insurance I would be able to be covered You know Because yeah. it's always in the back of my yeah. mind What could happen Worst yeah. scenario So um, I don't know Is it, it it hurts sometimes, but I see that everybody don't live like this. You know, <laughs> everybody doesn't have this experience. And they must, you know, maybe they're not aware, but it must also feel good. It has to, because on this side, it doesn't feel the greatest. Yeah, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. And um, and we, we were kind of talking about it before. It's like, it's almost like you don't know that this isn't a way of life or you don't like there is another way <laughs> like there's there's a whole sector of a, of, a, of a population that doesn't 
ever deal with any of these things. Like, like they're the the welfare and the well being of a certain certain segment of the population. This isn't even on their radar, you know. But this is this is like life <laughs> for millions of Americans, and um, yeah, it's 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 not a it's not a good look. It's not a good look at all. At all. And I bring this up often a statement that has really stuck with me from one of the best therapists I ever had. Um, she talks about how IV, you know, is at the tip of that iceberg. It's what you can see, but but all of those other things up underneath of the iceberg, a lot of us living with HIV probably share in a lot of that. You know, those different traumas and experiences and just how we getting it every day that kind of led to that diagnosis. And the fact that we are able to pinpoint it down, you know, that much, and then we're yeah. still experiencing it. It kind of, yeah. it make you feel a certain type of way, but as agents of change, we are here yeah. to continue to be able to have these conversations and be loud about it. Cause I know I can't be quiet. It's not just for me, it's for, you know, my, the other people, my, my people in my community, like it's not just me. I'm just a small portion of, you know, what I experience on a daily. And they, yeah. everybody doesn't always have the opportunity to share spaces with people that can make change. Like, no, I'm going to use my voice. And I'm going to always talk like this because I'm going to always talk like this. That yeah. is, <laughs> you know, is a product of my environment and not, you know, to be judged. Even that whole, you know, thing when we talk about systems, I'm about to jump into the comments, y'all, because it's so many. Oh no, I'm cutting out. Am I here? Yeah, we're here now. Okay, yeah. I can see it on my end. Yeah. But I was saying the stress of having a code switch throughout oh. the day. Other people, <laughs> they don't understand it. Like you don't have that pressure, that stress. Yeah. Well, and I'll be honest, I've stopped. I've stopped. I stopped doing it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I quit. <laughs> I quit. I'm just gonna be Connie. <laughs> like I, I quit trying to be anything else but Connie, and just let the chips fall to me, and let people think what they want to think. Um, because it doesn't make me any less intelligent. It doesn't make me any less, you know, passionate. It doesn't make me any, you know. It doesn't change anything about me. It might change your perception, but your perception is not my business. Like that, that has nothing to do with me. Um, I wanted to go right back for a second, though, when we're talking about the vulnerabilities. I did not realize that I was vulnerable to HIV or how I was vulnerable to HIV until I went through Common Threads. Um, common, I, I did Common Threads in 2009, so seven years after being diagnosed. And if once if you're when you're diagnosed, to be honest, for me, I can't speak for anybody else, but I was like, you know, what did I do wrong? You know, you carry that that shame and that guilt of like, you know, what of what it is that you do and 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 how it contributes to you being positive. But to learn that the single fact that I was, you know, the daughter of a single mother who worked two and three jobs at a time that we moved all the time because we were in state, you know, because of the economic instability, because of the fact that, you know, like these, these external factors that were around me that, that helped shape kind of who I am had an impact on me being, you know, positive. And so what that, what's that happened for me, it was like, Oh, and then it wasn't just me. Like I'm in a room full of women and we all got the same, like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like we got all of these commonalities and things in common. And I'm like, hold on, something is not right. You know, something is, so it goes back to that same conversation about, you know, about why we're vulnerable, who's not vulnerable. <laughs> and how do we get into that lane? <laughs> like, like how do we how do we move into that lane so that you know our kids and our grandkids are no longer vulnerable? You know, so yeah. 
Absolutely. Um, by the time I had graduated college, I felt like I went to like 14 different schools and most of them were elementary. You know what I'm saying? So the impact that that has now on the relationships that I have with people, period. Like, I'm not too bent. Come on. Come on. Because I done did this over and over again. I'm I'm prepared. I still won't unpack. I will not unpack. (laughs) No matter where I move, I am not. That box over there is going to stay back because I just don't know. It might be time to go. Right. We might have to go again. You know, moving, you get that down to a science. You hate yeah. it, but you know how to do it because we don't have to do it so much. So we're here. We yeah. are here. I'm going to um, jump back into these comments a little bit. Um, Bridget said that as she gets older, too, she stops code switching as much. She said, I do it less as I age. You're going to get this, Bridget. I love that. Um, Alicia. Alicia. I think that's how you pronounce her name. She was talking about how she was able to come up with like a support group that happened on in the evenings and weekends, I believe. But they said that they had not done it before because they did not have anyone to run it. So staffing seems to be an Put issue. That in the budget. How yes. about that? Pay somebody <laughs> an extra $2 an hour to run the, yeah, how about it? Let's try that. <laughs> Wait, um, oh, Olivia, she was talking about systems create s- conditions in which people struggle and have needs and punishes them for having them. Mm. Yes. Okay. Um, and then she also said, everything that is coming up in this conversation is why having folks at planning tables who have actually experienced the concerns being planned for is essential to people getting the care and support they actually need. Not an add-on or an afterthought essential. Mm-hmm. Or else it kind of makes one wonder who or for what service provision is supposed to be for. Ooh. Can we touch it, though? <laughs> can we? Can we touch it? Okay. So I have always, well, so I've made observations since I've been, you know, positive and operating in these spaces of, you know, receiving care and service providers and that kind of thing. And I get it. You want quality people working. You want you to make sure that the people who you hire and who you, um, who are responsible for providing these services have top-notch education. And we all know as people, you know, it's two women who have master's degrees that that is expensive and you want to, you know, you want to pay people well. However, what I find is, and I think I said this before, um, what I find is a lot of the times the money that is trickled, that, that, that is allocated towards HIV services goes all in mostly into salaries which does not trickle down to the people who who need those funds the most. And so um, that's something that I think needs to needs to be looked at, Um, because if if your your providers and your case managers are the ones who are reaping the economic benefit. What are we really doing, you know, like yeah so we we need those those funds to trickle down to and i'll i don't some of these events that happen that cost hundreds and thousands of dollars around hiv aids i can find a million other ways to spend that money i really could like i could and um i don't know i think it's i i think as as the the economic system as a whole in this nation is shifting I think that we're going to have to, as the HIV community, we're going to have to really sit down and look at how it is we are spending um, these dollars and if it's really beneficial to the people who need that, you know, need those those funds the most. You know, being now, okay, I've always considered myself an advocate, been positive 14 years, and it may not have been like online advocacy or anything, but I've always been an advocate in my community. And now getting a chance because I have come, you know, become more public, I've gotten a chance to sit at some tables that I haven't been at before. And I, while I'm grateful that I get to be at these tables, you kind of get to peep game a little bit to see how stuff is working and how frustrating it is to be a person living with HIV, 
They talk about cure this, cure that. You know, it takes resources. And they sit through three-hour meetings where we done said the same thing over and over and over again. And nothing new is really being <laughs> realized. And then we're going to follow this meeting up with another meeting where... Mm -hmm. We don't really. <laughs> and then we go break off into smaller groups and have meetings about that meeting. <laughs> like, yo, I wonder how much the time this is taking, how much of the resources, like, and it becomes offensive at some point. You know what I'm saying? We're not getting the work done. Yep. And it, it just, it made me feel some type of way. So being able to get those funds trickled down, I think would be an excellent solution where we could all, you know, benefit from. Yeah, um, I mean, even like for me, even if it were to somehow send some folks, whether it's GED classes, whether you send somebody to technical school, whether you help some, because we talked about Hopwood and we're talking about housing, I think we're going to get there. Whether you're paying somebody rent for the month, whether, you know, there's there's funds available for utility bills if somebody needs it. Like, these are basic needs. Like, basic. The the very basic necessities of life. Um, And they are going absolutely ignored. And we get a support group and a pizza party. I, um. Like, I love the idea of sending people to get these trees, but you know, it don't even have to go that far. And I'm grateful for the position that I've been blessed to be in. The mentorship piece is so important. Mm -hmm. Like, there are skills that these people already have that they hold that could be passed on and help benefit, you know, the next person, yeah. a new advocate coming up, a newly diagnosed person who wants to become, you know, an advocate in their community. Those skills that grant right in peace, mm -hmm. that, you know, the, the leadership. And I'm yeah. so grateful for where I am because I feel like finally I reached it. But that's a resource that not everyone yeah. has access to. And so. Well, and so, and something that, that just came to mind, too, is, um, like, what is the, the the thought process when you think about women living with HIV, if you're making these decisions? Do you even believe that these women have the capacity to become something else? Do you believe? Because you won't invest in it if you don't believe that they do. So I think a lot of it is stigma. And it is um, stigma that comes even honestly within the service providers, you know, of what it is that is thought about and believed about women living with HIV. And so we really honestly can't have some of these other conversations until we all agree that each person that comes into your office or each person that comes into your space is, is not only, you know, a human but a human that's deserving of becoming their best selves. And, it's, and it should be your mission and your job to help them do that because you are now being paid this salary to do X, Y, and Z. And so that's another conversation I think that needs to be had is we need to talk about what stigma is like within, you know, the, the service providers circle. Absolutely. We, uh, that's something that was also brought up from our kid was how certain facilities can be stigmatizing. Absolutely. Like even within the HIV community, which is crazy to me. I don't know if it should be so crazy, but I've had experiences within the HIV place that it's like, yo, this is supposed to be my safe place. Like, this supposed to feel not feel like the outside, and right now I'd rather get back out there because of how y'all treating me in here. Yes, yeah. that make you not want to go back. Like, and if I don't go back, then they kind of make me feel like I'm giving up on myself, and I don't want to do that. I need you to kind of, you know, to get to my, you know, the best quality of my physical health and all of it. <clears throat> but Johnny, I don't want to come back because of how you done treated me in here. This out and feeling like you know, being a, a black woman living in the inner city, and a lot of the providers that are treating you, you could tell don't have the same experience. This kind of speaks back to um Bridget's point of having mentors that look like you. I feel like also having you know, providers that look like you 
and they understand because then you understand maybe why I'm making certain choices that I'm making or what has led me to this. And I don't get that all the time. But whew, this that could be a whole nother whole nother mm -hmm. conversation. Mm -hmm. Um let's see. This is great for Michelle. How does health disparities and inequities cater to white supremacy in terms of HIV information sharing, prevention, and treatment options? <laughs> we got a whole nother hour. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we need another hour. Jeez. Okay. So, uh, all right. White supremacy. Prevention, treatment, and what was that? What else is that? Read it again for me. Um, okay. How does health disparities and equities cater to white supremacy in terms of HIV information sharing, prevention, and treatment options for Black women and girls living with HIV? All right. So the debate for me, to, to, the, the way that I view white supremacy, it is... Um, it's it's a systemic um like continuum to ensure that there is always a population that is that is in power and that there's a population that is not and so um that's the basis for me for for white supremacy when we look at that on a on a micro level specifically for women and girls Black women and girls living with HIV or women and girls, period, who are vulnerable to HIV, it is my, it is my belief that in that whole hierarchy and power structure of white supremacy, Black women and girls are, <laughs> we're the base, <laughs> like we are the baseline. And I believe that there's, there's enough happening around us and sometimes we don't even realize that it's happening um, to maintain that order, to maintain that hierarchy and um, and how that impacts HIV. We can look at it from a historical um, lens. Um, when I presented research a few, few weeks ago or maybe a few months ago now, um, just laid out the fact that black women are the mule of America. Like we are the ones who have who have carried <laughs> the nation literally on our shoulders. And and not only have we carried the the nation on our shoulders, if we ever complain, then we are a problem. And we are meant to shut up and we are meant to to code switch and, and alter ourselves to make to to fit into a mold that never wanted us in, in, you know from the gate other than our labor, whether it's mental labor, physical labor, that's all that's ever been, you know, accepted from us. And so, <laughs> so that, that also goes into that question of, you know, as a provider, how do you, do you still see my labor? <laughs> do you still see me as, as, you know, as, as this person who was here to serve? Um, and so when we're talking about HIV and we're talking about treatment and we're talking about prevention, if you see me as less than a human, if you see me as just someone who is here to serve you and, and help you maintain an order um, and a hierarchy, then it makes sense that we don't have transportation. It makes sense that, you know, that the rent doesn't get paid. It makes sense that, you know, that, that there are families who don't have enough to eat. It makes sense that, you know, that women live black women particularly you know live in in poverty and so um uh, until i think as a as a nation i think enough of us scream and say i'm not your labor you know and and that i am a human then we're, we we will probably continue to see you know what we're seeing yeah because my my value my value is wrapped up not in who I am but what I can do for you, and if you don't see that I'm capable that I have any if I don't if I don't do anything for you and you see me as a liability rather than an asset, then then we're we're never going to be able to see eye to eye and we're you're never going to do what's necessary to provide need. 
Whoa, darn. I want to snap. I want to cry. That was so deep. That was so deep. Like, that could have either been the beginning or end of this conversation because that's so deep. It, it makes sense. Like, if why, if you want to keep me that way, then, yeah, and I'm not going to have access to the resources and I'm not going to be put in a position to thrive. You were up that master's degree in the cost earlier. Um, in full transparency, you know, this year I started looking for a house a little bit. And my feelings was hurt, majorly hurt, because, you know, I got the money saved and I got the credit and everything. But now it's time to go see how much of a house I qualify for. When I drive through these neighborhoods, you know, and see these big, beautiful houses, I'm like, oh, my God, how did they get this? What do you, what type of job you got to do to get there? You know, but now because of the student loan debt that I'm in, that kind of... <laughs> I don't even want to talk about it. It's like, la, 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 la. I don't even see it. I don't, <laughs> like, you don't even exist. <laughs> Until it's time to obtain a resource, some assets that my, you know, my, the people that I went to school with, I went to a majority white school. A lot of them, you know, they was showing up to freshman year in the nicest cars, you know, BMWs and Hummers and all of that. And I pulled up in my little joint that, you know, got repoed out the lot, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I imagine that them same people probably had the money to also to afford to go to school. And while that was something that I wanted to do, I couldn't necessarily afford it. And I got it now, you know, but it still didn't put me on day level. Like I'm still behind. That was brought up also in my um, in the research. We were talking about, you know, they said that, um, that the statistics say that black women are the most educated population in the nation. However, <laughs> we are still behind when it comes to the dollars and the cents. So make it make sense. Like my, a lot of my colleagues also went to a PWI um, for my master's. A lot of my colleagues came in because they had social capital because they were connected to, you know, some program that was gonna pay for their, you know, their education. All they had to do was work for this, you know, organization for two years after. But not I said the cat. I am laden with the student loan debt, and like, like barely, like you almost even don't want to work because the way that the 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 payments are gonna be set up, like they go snatch the, the check anyway. You know what I mean? So it's yeah, yeah, yeah. So and so that's why I say even when I'm talking about service providers and case managers, like I get it because I'm in that same boat when it comes to the, the student loan debt. But then at the same time, it's like if this money is is supposed to be spent in a way that, you know, that helps people and we're still feeling the brunt of being positive in a nation that <laughs> that has no love for, you know, those who live in poverty, then what are we doing? Like we're just spinning our wheels and um, I'm tired of spinning. Yeah, get dizzy a little bit. Yeah, man. Um, <laughs> um, I'm gonna go make the Bridges comment. They're always deep. She said we are in trouble in terms of white supremacy. As soon as white folk in power start trying to cause slavery and voluntary relocation, it's a rat for us being visible and valuable as a people. Not to mention taking away our basic rights to body autonomy. It felt pretty messed up to be a black woman sometimes. Like, don't get me wrong. I love being a black woman. We talked about this before. Because you don't even realize that you, you don't realize that, you know, something ain't right. Or that you, your experiences could be not what everyone else is experiencing. I'm just used to, you know, carrying all this weight. I'm used to making a way when it ain't no way. I'm right, used to, you right. know, just making it happen. And to see that that's not everybody's reality is like, oh, well, what is like over there? Like, that's, that's it. Even yeah. <laughs> you, you know, the concept of work. Oh my God. My mom was a nurse and my dad was a laborer. And so I'm used to them, you know, working many hours throughout the week and somebody's back feet hurt, you know, my, Days all burnt up because he was a welder, all of that. I'm used to complaining to go to work. I'm used to it being something that I dreaded. And the fact now that I've gotten access to resources that have provided me, you know, to not have that experience, I'm so grateful. 
but it feels real salty. Like y'all been doing this. People been, you know, being able to work from home. People have had the ability to, you know, pay their bills. Y'all been doing this. But meanwhile, I'm out here, you know, barely making it, you know, working my little hourly job being harassed by, you know, upper management and doing all this other, you know, crazy stuff. And it didn't hit to be this hard. Yeah. I didn't, I ain't know where to pull on though. I didn't know where to go to because you know, you fill out applications, you do all the right things, get the education, and do all of that, and still somehow I can't get there. That yeah. is frustrating. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna go ahead and take my medicine today, but I don't know, you know, what the the outlook for the rest of my life is. Yeah, I um, I absolutely feel you. I. <laughs> I went to the beach a few weeks ago. I was so excited. Like I said, I hadn't had a car in three three years. So to actually be in a car and be able to drive the 70 miles to get to the beach for the day, like I felt like I was on top of the world. So the day after I come back from, I go to the beach, I stayed, it was a day trip. I went to the beach, grabbed some lunch, came back to Orangeburg. The next day, um out and about and i overhear a conversation between two families um and these two families are caucasian and um you know they're talking about their trips to the beach one of them just got back from the beach the other one is on their way to the beach but they're going for a week at a time <laughs> like they they their children they're taking grandma with them to keep the kids and i'm sorry i'm transitioning so i can plug in my my laptop but um but they're doing they're they're doing this and I'm just like, why Why do I have to only take a day trip? <laughs> what happened to my week at the beach? <laughs> and to be able to go, you know, like, so it, it was just a glare, another glaring observation that everybody doesn't live the way that I live. And I had to grapple within myself about the fact that I am worthy of that kind of life. I am worthy <laughs> of being able to afford, um, you know, the, not only to have the things that I need, but some of what I want. Like I'm worthy of it and I deserve it. And um, that within itself um, has been a journey just to get to that place, to be able to say and declare that not only do I want that for myself, but I am worthy of it and I deserve it. Yes, yes. Um that whole like the culture of poverty is something serious like i coming up out of there oh my gosh i hope one day to you know for it to be a distant memory but you know even going to go buy stuff for yourself sometimes you need to look presentable but like I, it's a guilt. <laughs> yo, yo, but comes with it can I, can I please, I just need like $20 to go to the laundromat. I want to, I want to wear clean clothes. Yes. You know and I want to, I want to, I want to buy, I want to buy Tide. <laughs> like yes. I, you know, I don't want to just buy Wave all the time. Like I, you know, I wanna, <laughs> I, I'd like to buy some Tide, you know, I like the little pods. I think they're cute. Like, I, <laughs> No, I'm so embarrassed, not really, I'm not embarrassed to say this. So I had to convince somebody the other day, no, I really know how to wash clothes, but it was just that when I was poor and didn't have any money to go to the, the laundromat, which, you know, everybody don't go to the laundromat neither. That's an experience by itself. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I didn't have money. So I would put everything in one load and just wash that one load. So now I know how to wash clothes, but I've just been conditioned from being poor and having to go to the laundromat with $10. Yep. Like, I get it. Yep. So, oh my gosh, this is such a deep conversation. Um, and so talking about that, Bridget, she brought up the point of, you know, housing instability um, and the affordability gaps are growing as our food is instabilities. Mm -hmm. If you're worried about where your next meal is coming from or where you're going to lay your head, your physical and medical health is furthest from your mind. Those things need to be addressed immediately on a border federal level. Absolutely. Well, and what's happening, I think, is 
I think there's an awakening happening as inflation continues to affect more families. Um, your $100 that you used to spend at the grocery store um, a week is not taking you as far as it once did. And, um, and I think that as more people have these experiences, I think there'll be, there'll be not, not, I think there'll be more empathy and there'll be more consideration to those who, who have been living this way for a very long time. It's almost like you don't know what this party is like until you're invited. And so now it's almost like a majority of the country has been invited to this poverty party. And um, it's, it's not fun. It's, it's not hot. It's not the move. And so um, I, I think we're, we're actually seeing some of that happening and unfolding as food and housing and gas prices continue to increase. Yeah. And with all of those stressors, um, it, you know, it makes, it, sometimes it feel like a bad situation get worse. Like you done figured out how to navigate through this bad situation. And now they done added another layer to it. Like I've already <laughs> figured out, I don't know how well I'm doing, but you know, I've figured out how to man, navigate through this world, being black, being a woman, being a woman living with HIV, you know, poor, all of that. And as I try to get out of one, right, it seems like, you know, another one. It was waiting on me. But I feel like as a community that I do have support here, and I feel like that has made yeah. the biggest difference. Not a support group, but the support that I get from the people that are in the community. <laughs> well, and I can say, too, I believe that um, also, like, I'm not, because I have all of this experience in being, you know, of, of being poor, I'm not fretful. Like, I'm, I'm not... Uh, I'm just like, welcome, y'all. Like, <laughs> like we gonna be okay, y'all. It's gonna be all right. We don't, you know, don't get in a tizzy. It's gonna be okay. Like, poor isn't the worst thing that can happen. It's really not. It's really not. But I, you know, I say all of that to say, like, we're we're the as black women who have been, like I said, the labor force and carrying the nation on our shoulders. Guess who has value now? Because we know how to survive and make it happen off of nothing. You know what I mean? So that whole thing of the, the last shall be first and the first shall be last and you know that whole thing of turning the thing upside down like we're we're gonna be okay <laughs> we're gonna be okay and so um that makes me um proud to be a black woman proud to have been able to stand the test of time proud to come through a lineage of women who just would not give up who did not um, succumb to to what was you know what was handed to them, and not only did they not succumb to it, they took them scraps and they made beautiful things with it. You know what I'm saying? They made delicious meals with what you know with what was given to them, and raised children and you know and birthed babies and and did all kind of beautiful things to to make sure that we could get here. And now that we here, you're gonna have to hear me. <laughs> you you're gonna have to hear me. Absolutely not going to do this quietly. And yeah. I'm definitely, you know, the voice. I'm the voice. I get in trouble a lot because of my voice. But, you know, I say a lot of those things that people don't want to say or, you know, will keep it as a thought in their head. But I feel like, I don't know, I have an opinion and it matters. Once I realized, once somebody recognized that my voice mattered, that that gave me the, it empowered me to keep using it. Like, oh, somebody gonna listen? And then as I continue to use it more and more, I realized how much of an agent of change that I have become. And that is because of my community, you know, to be able to bring light to these things that some folks up there probably will never have to experience. or don't know, you know, anyone that's ever been here. And I'm just so grateful for this community. Let's see if we've touched on everything. Um, let's see. How do we use media more effectively around messaging and activism to inspire people to get involved in their communities? Use people that look like them. <sighs> There's an idea. <laughs> I see. I see, you know, I see commercials, you know, around HIV treatments, and I see, but very rarely do I see anybody that looks like they're having 
my experience. Like if there is a black woman in, you know, in, in these, you know, commercials or within media, um, they're not having my experience. And I think it's been done well in the past. So you think about um, there's a few episodes where of different shows in the like back in the day where HIV was addressed. Um, like a different world, like that episode with Tisha Campbell is still like iconic. Um, like tell the stories, tell the stories of like real people. I think our stories are necessary in involving and in recruiting, I think community to get involved. Absolutely. I would more than likely, you know, respond more positively to someone that looked like me. I got to help make some materials one time for some HIV messaging. And, you know, we put little hoop earrings on the girl and she yeah. had a little haircut and all of that. I was like, okay, like I could see this. Yeah, I she's fly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it so much. Um, okay, so I just saw the comment flash across the screen about our three-minute survey. If you all could please fill this out for us, that would continue to make sure that we're having conversations that are meaningful, impactful, and it would just help with the programming. So please, if you could fill that out, I'm, it's showing again right here, and it's in the comment section. I think that we have covered almost everything that was submitted. Um I want to read this comment, though. It means disclosing, and a lot of Black women are afraid to disclose because of discrimination and stigma. Yes. And that's one thing that I really stepped out on. I wanted to, I want to help decrease the stigma or just, you know, show the world that we are still people. Like, we're women. We are, it's not too much different from me to you, you know, so stigma stuff crazy. But did you want to say something? Um, no, that's true. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> women, there are a lot of women who are afraid of disclosing, um, because it does. It, it, yeah, people are, people are still very much so ignorant about HIV, and um, and a lot of times that ignorance hurts. Definitely. Um, we'll continue, you know, to do the work. And so hopefully, you know, you've provided a lot of solutions by yourself today, Connie. Whoa, that's what I'm here for. Seems <laughs> <laughs> like a lot of simple solutions, like have, have they not been thought about before? But it definitely gives you a lot to think about and, you know, just get into the right tables and getting support to sit at those tables to be able to express this thing, I think is paramount. Um, well, we're going to... Do you have anything you want to close the conversation with? Mm, no, thank you for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. Um, I'm I'm really really hopeful that things are are shifting and changing, and that there will be no longer a need for these kind of conversations in the new in the near future. So, oh God, I think that's all our hopes. Oh goodness. Well, thank you all for joining us for episode 21 of A Girl Like Me Live. This has been great. Thank you so much, Connie, for coming. Don't forget to fill out that evaluation, y'all, please. And join us again next month for our next episode. Look on our website, www.thewellproject.org, to stay in tune with what that will be and when. And thank you once again. So here we go.